two weeks ago, we began to look at the heart of a man who is perhaps one of the greatest witnesses for Christ who ever lived. And, and you know that that would be the Apostle Paul. His life had been given over to the service of Christ. And in his sharing the gospel, we begin to see some characteristics of what really is involved in the life of an individual who wants to share Christ with others. And as we looked at his life two weeks ago, we saw that he had a deep compassion for people who did not know Christ as Savior. That compassion was developed by a number of different things. One element of that was he absolutely believed the truth. He had a certainty that there was one way of salvation. That was through the person of Jesus Christ. There are not many roads that lead to God. There is one road that leads to God, and it's through the sacrifice and the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the person of Christ. In addition to that, he had a deep appreciation for the redemption that he had experienced. By the grace of God, Paul was called to put his trust in Christ, which he did, and now he passed from death into life. His sins were forgiven. He had an eternal home with the Father, and he was deeply thankful. There was a third element that we saw in that, and the third element was that he understood that people who do not trust in Christ as Savior are doomed. They are going to hell. And when hell gives up the dead they will be cast into the lake of fire where the Bible tells us that the smoke of their torment ascends forever. So he understood the severity that faced those who did not know Christ as their Savior. The final thing was this. He understood that the ways of God are very mysterious. You don't know what God is doing. As a matter of fact, Jesus said that the the working of the Spirit of God is like the wind. You, You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it's going. But you know when it's there. And he was talking about the Holy Spirit. Who, when he is there, you know he's there. And And hopefully all of you, if I hope, have come to the point where you experience that where you knew the Holy Spirit was there convincing you of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, and of the need to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Now we move on into another area. The the new area that we run into is involved in the sovereign element of God that comes into play when it comes to leading people to a knowledge of Christ. We would say witnessing, sharing Christ. And, and here's, here's what often happens. When we talk about this sovereignty of God, what do we mean? We mean that God is absolutely free to do whatever he chooses to do. There is no ruling force or power over him. He is completely self-determined. He is not subject to any other authority. He is the final authority. So when we talk about God's sovereignty, we're saying this. God has the right and the power to move in any direction for any purpose that he chooses. 
And Paul now goes into a discussion of this because what happens is you begin to understand that there is this dimension of compassion for the lost that draws us into the mix and draws the person who needs Christ as Savior into the mix. But there is something going on behind the scenes. There is something taking place that you and I do not have any power over. We do not have the capability to manipulate. It is a sovereign God who is working behind the scenes. And so now what Paul does is, he brings into our vision, into our scope of understanding, this reality. There is human responsibility, and there is divine sovereignty. When you mention divine sovereignty, which includes words like election, predestination, it often causes trouble and conflict. It should not do that. There should be no battle over this. Both are indicated and clearly discussed in Scripture. It causes some people to break fellowship, which should never happen. It causes some people to become fatalistic in believing that, well, I don't have to do anything, because I've heard this this argument used, I don't have to do anything, God is going to save those whom he chooses to save. And they completely remove the human dimension that is necessary as part of God's program. Do you all get what I'm saying? Those of you who have been around the Christian world long enough, you know that this creates problems, doesn't it? Why? Why? Everybody thinks they're right. You know who's right? God's right. God is right. And guess what he presents? Both sides. What the human side doesn't get is this. It isn't our responsibility to convert a person. It's our responsibility to share the heart of what causes a person to turn from their sin and put their faith and trust in Christ as Savior. And what God has done is this. He has allowed us to be part of the purpose that he is accomplishing. And when we say, you know what, I don't have to tell others about Christ, you are saying I withdraw from participation with God's program, with God's purpose. I'm not going to be part of it. And that is sin. God has chosen to use us as people who communicate the truth of his word and tell others about Christ so that he can sovereignly go to work in the background to convince their hearts and their minds that what they need is Christ as their Savior. Paul does not shy away from this. Do you think he understood this was going to create problems? I'm sure he did. But he doesn't shy away from it. And when you come to Romans chapter 9, you see it in big, bold letters flashing. God is sovereign. And then he tells us this. That sovereignty is going to extend into the decrees that God himself makes. Turn with me back to Romans chapter 9, and I want you to look at verses 6, 7, and 8 with me. It says, But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. 
nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. He, what, what Paul is doing is, he is taking the reality of what God did in the Old Testament He combines that with what Christ himself said about his own ministry and what he came to do. And he brings the two together so that we will understand the purpose that God is accomplishing through his people. Here here is the, the illustration that he uses. He says, go back in your mind's eye and understand this. God's word has not failed. You remember just prior to this, Paul had been talking about the fact that he would be willing to give up himself if only Israel would be saved. But here's what he understands. Not all Israel is going to be saved. As a matter of fact, there are those who are Jewish who believe that simply by their physical birth, they are going to heaven. How do I know? I've had them tell me that. They believe that because they are Jewish, they are the chosen people of God. What Paul is telling us is this. You've got it wrong. You don't understand the truth. Here's the truth. Not all of the descendants of Abraham are going to be saved. Only those who come by the promise. And here's the example he uses. He says, Abraham had children. Now, we often forget this. And uh, th- this is a reality that, that, that we really need to focus on. The first part, you, you will understand. Hagar, you remember Hagar? Abraham's handmaid. Uh, he, pardon me? Yeah, she, yeah. Well, yeah, but he worked for Abraham too. Okay. All right. Sarah's... Sarah's maid. (laughs) All right. Sarah gives Hagar to her husband because they had no children. Sarah was not getting pregnant. So she said, all right, it may be that God is going to raise up children through my servant. And I would suspect that maybe Sarah's motives might have been somewhat honorable, but they were disobedient to the Lord. You You don't have to do what only God can do. That's where we run into trouble. Well, here's what happened. Abraham goes in to Hagar. She conceives and she has a son by the name of Ishmael. He was not the son of promise. All his descendants are descendants of Abraham. Because Abraham was the father. But there was only one child of promise. That was Isaac. The child of promise that had been given to Abraham was the promise that he and Sarah would have a son and that occurred at a time that was impossible for them to conceive. But here is Isaac. It's through Isaac that your seed will be blessed. Now is he implying that only the physical descendants of Isaac through Isaac, back to Abraham, are the ones who are going to be saved. No, the emphasis is this, that there was a promise that was given, and it is based upon that promise that you will find there are those who will come in faith as Abraham came in faith, 
and they will find redemption and be identified as the sons, the children of Abraham. We've, we've talked about this before. You remember that little song, Abraham had many sons? Many sons had father Abraham. If you, maybe you don't know that song, but it's a song that basically says this. Uh, I became a son of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ. That, that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying that those who come because of the promise, the promise of coming redemption that is provided through the person of Jesus Christ, they are the sons of Abraham. And so when Paul looks at this, he is saying, God's word has not failed. What God promised is true. There are going to be descendants of Abraham that are going to be through Isaac, and they are going to be the sons of promise, just like those who come to the Father through the person of Jesus Christ are the sons of promise. And so what he explains... Look back at those verses again. He says that these, verse 8, that those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. What's, What's he saying there? Here comes the teachings of Jesus. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. It is no more than flesh. The person inhabiting the body is lost, is dead in trespasses and sins. But that which is born of the Spirit, as Pastor Luke explained in the Catechism a little while ago, where the Spirit of God takes the benefits of the death of Jesus Christ and applies them and appropriates them to the heart and life of the person who puts his and her trust in Christ. That which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. That's what's in view here. The promise of new life through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The promise that was given that a Redeemer would come who would take our sin upon himself, who would be buried. He would die. He would be buried. He would rise again from the dead. And when you come by faith, as Abraham did... Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. When you come by faith, your sins are forgiven, your life is turned around because of this new life that you have in Christ, and your eternal destiny is secure with the Father for all eternity. Does that make sense? So what is, what is the decree? What, what was decreed? from eternity past. Well, we already know this, that before the foundation of the world, Christ had already been identified as the one who would be coming as the Redeemer. I shouldn't use the word Christ. I should say this. God the Son was the one who would come in flesh, be identified with humankind, die for us, rise from the dead, and provide for us eternal life. That's before the world was ever created. There was no emergency plan. There was nothing that said, Oh, God, uh, uh, God, I, I made a mistake. Not God saying, God is saying this. I made a mistake. I quickly have to have some kind of a, a, a new program. No, this had already been determined before the world ever began. And so what we have is God establishing a decree that says this. Though man will fall into sin and be condemned by sin, 
the means of his salvation will come through the sacrifice that I offer of myself. And the benefits of that will only be applied by the power of the Holy Spirit whom God uses to turn the heart of an individual to put his or her faith and trust in Christ as Savior. So it will be the sacrifice of Christ, the extension of God's grace that reaches down and gives to mankind what he does not deserve, his grace, and it will be appropriated through the exercise of faith of the individual. Paul put it this way, by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So God, in his sovereignty, made decrees. But as you go on, you're going to find out that there was more. He was sovereign in his power. Look at verse 9. In verse 9, what you find is this. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Oh, wait a minute. Sarah is going to have a son. But wait, (laughs) this is crazy. Abraham's 100. Sarah's 90. She hasn't been able to bear throughout the bearing ages of a woman. And God says, wait a minute. I am a sovereign God. I will do what I will do. And what I'm telling you is this. The promise that I made to Abraham and Sarah is absolutely going to be fulfilled. She is going to have a son. The son of promise. And now God, in his sovereignty, says, my power will be exercised in Sarah and in Abraham. She will conceive. She will bear a son. And it is through that son that you will find the descendants of faith the descendants of Abraham that come by faith because this is the fulfillment of the promise. Abraham believed it, he embraced it, and now he says, God has exercised power on my behalf that is completely according to his sovereign will. I didn't mention this, but Abraham had other children. Are you aware of that? There was a woman by the name of Keturah who bore at least six children to Abraham. But the focus that we have made and and what is made for us in the scriptures is between Hagar and the son of the flesh, which was Ishmael, and Isaac, and and, uh, Sarah with the son Isaac, who was the fulfillment of the promise. We would identify him as the son of the spirit. And now you have these two lines. And by the way, the battle that started back then is still going on today. It's part of the problem that we're dealing with in the Middle East. Just part of it. But it's part of the problem. The decree that God made was part of his sovereign plan. The power that God exercised in giving Sarah the capability to have a son was part of God's sovereign plan. But now we come to the toughest passage of all. And this involves the sovereign 
choices that God makes. And I want to tell you, people have a real hard time with this. this. These next three verses are really kickers. Look, beginning at verse 10. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. Alright? Who did Rebekah conceive? Jacob and Esau. Two sons who were both absolute examples of what humankind should be. No, you know I'm being facetious. Both of these guys were stinkers. And probably, Jacob, or or pardon me, Jacob, Jacob, was the stinkeriest of all. He was a deceiver. And we look at his life, and we find just a mess. But God says, before anything was done, before good was done, before bad was done, I exercised my sovereign will. And look what it says in verse 13. Oh, pardon me, verse 12. It, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. That was completely contrary to the custom of the day. The, the oldest was the one who gained the greatest benefits. But that's not the way it's going to be because the sovereign God says, no, I am changing it. I am going to do what I choose to do. And then he says in verse 13, as it is written, oh my goodness, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What do we do with this? What in the world does this mean? God made a sovereign choice based upon his own nature, based upon his own purpose that had been established from eternity past, and he looks at two people who haven't even been conceived as yet, and when they're conceived, he reveals, before these boys are born and do anything good or evil, I'm making a choice, and my choice is this. The younger will be over the older. The older is going to serve the younger. Because I have loved the younger and hated the older. We don't have a whole lot of problems with loving the younger, do we? God is love, right? God so loved the world God said, I am love. But God poured out his love toward us. And as you go through scriptures, you have no problem dealing with the love aspect of God. He loved Jacob. In spite of his deception... In spite of his disobedience, in spite of his conniving, 
in spite of all of the issues of his life that were contrary to what you would look at and say, this is the way a person should live. Boy, if there was ever an example of somebody that needed God's grace, he was it, right? I can think of two. Him and me. Him and me. Do you have a problem with God loving Jacob? Anybody have a problem with that? Raise your hand. I see one hand. From the human point of view, that seems to be a problem, doesn't it? You know what? This, this throws my son. He cannot understand why a person who is a nice, good neighbor can die and go to hell and a serial killer can trust Christ and go to heaven. And it isn't because of the greatness of our sin. It's because of the greatness of our Savior. That's what makes the difference. By and large, we don't have a problem with God loving Jacob. But we do have a problem with God hating Esau. Well, if you and I interpolate into God's thinking the way we understand terminology, this would be problematic. Because generally, when you and I hate someone, we mean malice toward them. We love it when they fail. Boy, if they could get hurt, that would really be good. Or you might have even gone this far and said, boy, I wish they were dead. That's the kind of hate that you and I embrace because it's part of our fallen nature. God does not have a fallen nature. To him, hate means something completely different. What does it mean? Open your Bibles to the book of John. I'm sorry. You can open them to John, but also open them to Luke. Look with me, if you will, please, at Luke chapter 14. And I want you all to turn there. Come on, grab a Bible and turn to Luke chapter 14. Boy, this becomes problematic. If you drop down to verse 25, look at this. Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Let's try a little experiment. How many of you are followers of Jesus Christ? Okay. If that's the case, turn to your mate and say, I hate you. (laughs) Happy... (laughs) Okay, wait a minute. All right. Now see, that... (laughs) 
<laughs> All right. Now, if you mean it in human terms, you've just unloaded a message that should never have been communicated. But if you understand it from God's perspective, here's what it comes down to. We already know that God says we are to honor our fathers and our mothers. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. He talks about the love of parents for their children, the love of children for their parents. And he talks about the love that we are to show even to our enemies. So you can't understand hate in the same way that you and I would use it today. Instead, from God's point of view, what he means is this. You do not fit the purpose for which I have called your brother. And what he is saying to the husband and the wife, when it comes to the purpose for which we live, God is the, ho- the one who determines my purpose. Now, God says this, I want you husbands to love your wives. Do, do you get the transition there? I'm not explaining this well. My wife... Oh, you did. She's afraid. She is the woman I love. She is the woman to whom I am committed for life. She is the woman whom I will never divorce. But as Billy Graham said, I may kill her. No. <laughs> No, 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 no. That, it was all a lighthearted thing. Okay, you understand that. All right. So she is the one to whom I'm committed. But she is not the first in my life. He is. Part of the reason, when I, when I perform wedding ceremonies and, and, and go through counseling with young couples, one of the things I tell them is this. You cannot count on each other to be faithful to each other because you love each other. The thing that will make you faithful to each other is that you love God. Because He's with you wherever you go. On those long business trips, in those little weekend getaways that you have a man's weekend out or a woman's weekend out. It's not the love that you have for each other because that goes like this. But when you love God and you make Him first, everything else is secondary. Therefore, I hate my mother and father because I am committed to the truth of Christ. I hate my wife because I am committed to the purpose of Christ. I hate my son and daughter because I am committed to the purpose of Christ. Now, if you say, wait a minute, Pastor, I'm really having a hard time with this. Well, then let's put it into practical terms. When God said, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated, um, how did God treat Jacob. He put him through some tough trials, but boy, he got blessed. He was blessed enormously. And we could take time to go through that, but I don't have that time this morning. But then, let's go to Esau. How did God treat Esau? He blessed him. 
He gave him crops. He gave him herds. He gave him sheep. What? Flocks. And do you remember when Jacob and Esau met? After all of the deception that Jacob did, here comes Esau with his troops of people, his, his army that he was leading. And here comes Jacob. <laughs> you you got to read through this, where Jacob begins to divide up the people, and he sends one group, and then you, you find out who's not all that important to him by the order in which he sends these groups to meet Esau, because he's afraid there's going to be bloodshed. And uh, he sends gifts along. And do you remember what Esau's response was to Jacob? Keep your gifts. I have been so blessed. I don't need any of this. Esau, I hated. Ah, God didn't mean any malice. God didn't have anything harmful for Esau. He blessed him. But in comparison to the purpose for which he had set apart Jacob, he could say, Esau I have hated. Jacob I have loved. Does that make sense? It is a redefinition of understanding what hate means. And we have to look at it from God's point of view. I can't get into the rest. And I know that that happens a lot. I, uh, it, I don't want it to continue to happen this way. But what this comes down to is, in God's sovereign plan, in his purpose for you, do you understand that His desire is your heart would be filled with compassion for the lost. But as you share Christ with the lost, you don't do it with the concept of fatalism. God's going to save them, he's going to save them. If he's not, he's not. You don't do it with the false concept, I can convince this person that Christ is the only way of salvation. What I know is this, God has called me to be part of the program that he has established in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with the lost, and here's what I know. I can be motivated by the sovereignty of God and absolutely confident that some of the people with whom I share the gospel of Christ are going to believe. Isn't that great? It's not up to me. I would, I would be horrible in sharing the gospel. I am horrible in sharing the gospel. And you might say the same thing. But the fact of the matter is, we get to work with a sovereign God in sharing Christ. Is that not good? Have you trusted Christ? Have you trusted Christ? Have you not trusted Christ? If you don't, your eternity has been determined. You are lost. And you need a Savior. And Christ is the only one. And if you will trust Him, He will save you. 
If you know Christ as your Savior, who is going to tell others about what Christ did for us? All those who are willing to tell others about Christ, please stand. And if you're not a believer, please stand. And if you say, I'm not so sure about telling others about Christ, please stand. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm not putting anybody on the spot. It's between you and God. Father, thank you for your word and its truth. I pray, Lord, that as we prepare our hearts to go through the remainder of this day, it might be with an eye looking for the opportunities that we have to tell others about our great Savior who can take the worst sinner, forgive his or her sins, and freely, because of your grace, give them eternal life. Thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus. Amen. God bless you.